Welcome to the EIUC Talk Show. Our goal with this show is to introduce you to the most interesting people with the most interesting ideas. Today, we have a very, very special guest. The way how we describe Dr. Allen, he is probably one of the few really unique minds of the last couple of years in, in this campus. He has a very interesting story of, of working at one of the, what I would say and describe as one of the weirdest and most unique places in the world in the, in the 1900s. That place was called Bell Labs. And if you don't know what that is, that was basically a place where the brightest people from the United States in the world came together and discovered one of the most impressive and, and useful things that we use today. Welcome, Dr. Allen. Well, thank you. I'm so super excited to, to talk to you and, and, and really talk about your ideas and, and really get to know you a little more. So you spent about, if I remember correctly, 32 years working at Bell Labs. And what you say was your lifelong pursuit, your lifelong goal. And that goal was human speech recognition or processing. What is something that you sh that usually when you tell people, people are most surprised about? Or what was the most surprising thing you uh, discovered? Well, let's move up on this a little bit more slowly. Okay. Um, when I went to Bell Labs, I just wanted to find a problem that was interesting to solve that would take, that was hard enough that it was going to take a while to do it. And when I was there for the first year, I worked on some mundane things, but they were interesting, like an ultrasonic telephone. They wanted to make wireless telephones. There were no wireless telephones back then. So we wanted to make wireless telephones, and we did. Um, Anyway, so I worked on some of those things, and then I was introduced to the research department, and there I learned about studying the ear, the inner ear. And that struck me. That's a problem that's hard enough to work on. I'm going to be working on that one for a while, and it's a worthy problem to solve. And Bell Labs, what's their business? Their business is speech, transmitting speech back and forth, you know. Oh, Mabel, I'm here. So <laughs> it was considered to be a very valid thing to study. So then I went from there to working on studying the brain of a cat, sticking electrodes in the brain of the cat and putting sounds in. We had loudspeakers specially made put them in the ear and then we'd play the sounds in different tones and and then try to track down where the sound went in the auditory nerve and what it looked like. And it just got worse and worse or better and better, depending on your opinion. <laughs> um, and I started modeling the cochlea and really got heavy into the math. And um, Bell Labs was very, very happy with what I was doing. They were proud of it. And as long as you're successful in doing something that is considered to be relevant and important, then 
They're happy about it. They let you do it. Now, you're asking me, what did I do? It's a pretty, pretty big question. So we were just talking a few minutes ago. One of the first things I worked on is, is speaker phone. So speaker phone is a phone that sits on your desk. It's a hands-free phone. And tell me to stop talking if I'm talking too much. So it's a hands-free phone, and it didn't work very well. So you get feedback. It was problems with the room reverberation, all sorts of issues. It basically didn't work very well. So we, we worked on that problem, you know, designing a loudspeaker that was not feeding back into the microphone and there's switching circuits inside so that when you started to talk, the loudspeaker would turn off. And when you stopped talking, the loudspeaker would come on so you could have a natural conversation. And um, worked on that for a while. And because of that, I got interested in room acoustics because room acoustics is one of the really serious problems. Room acoustics, this room is dead. But if you're in a classroom or, you know, if you're, in a, you've heard people talk on the phone when somebody calls them up and they're being interviewed and they, you can barely understand what they're saying because it's just all this reverberation. So he said, you know, got to deal with that. So I worked on a model of reverberation. I was telling you a few minutes ago that I, I worked on this model about treating a room and the walls is, are like mirrors. So if you have a source in front of the wall, there's another source on the other side of the wall, which is basically just a reflection. <coughs> there's not really a source there, but if you look, go look in a mirror, you can see many, many copies of yourself. You have two mirrors on either side, and you look in this mirror, then you see the reflection of that mirror, and that mirror has a reflection of this one, and you can just see an infinite number of mirrors. Well, it's the same thing with room reverberation. So I said, well, that's not so hard. So I treated the room as all of these reflections that are infinite number of reflections. And it was a kind of a trivial little exercise, but um, a paper is just cited huge number of citations, a couple a week to more than that. And so that was fun. It's the kind of thing I was looking for. It was interesting. And um, then I went from that to I learned signal processing, which is pretty much a well-understood topic today. Ask me another question. <laughs> so. I do want to keep going on Bell Labs, but I do want to ask you, when did you know you wanted to do all of this? So, I thought, I thought, When I was eight years old. Keep going. Um, I don't know how it happened, but I, my grandmother gave me an old radio that she didn't want, and I took it apart. I took all the pieces out and I thought, okay, now I got to put them back in. Well, I couldn't even begin to do that. Didn't have a clue how to put them back <laughs> together again. So it fascinated me. And I, back then I was using, I learned how to use vacuum tubes, which were what all the radios were made from vacuum tubes. But I don't know how old I was, but there was a, the first transistor 
was available commercially and you could buy one for a dollar. And it was about this big and had three wires coming out of it and there was a book you could get for another dollar and it had circuits in there and you could build those things. So I built at least half of the circuits that were in that book, burned up a lot of transistors, but they were a dollar each and I you know I no big deal. So the transistor, of course, replaced the vacuum tube, and we wouldn't have computers today if it weren't for those silly little transistors, which were not invented here, but the guy who invented them was at Bell Labs, and he didn't like his boss very much for pretty good reasons. The boss was pretty nasty to him. His name was John Bardeen, and he left Bell Labs, and he came to the University of Illinois. And... Uh, he had invented the transistor. And Bardeen tried to take credit for it, but not, not Bardeen. Um, Shockley tried to take credit for it, but Bardeen just ignored him and did his business. Then he got another Nobel Prize. You know that? What's your Right. In superconductivity, I think. So he really had very, very deep insights. And so that... That kind of human being is inspiring and you think, well, how did he know all of that? How did he do that, you know? Well, you can read about it. <clears throat> he had a very good mentor and he understood the concept of what was going on. And apparently very few people did. But he started with the simplest thing. You know, you take a piece of quartz and, and you put something on there and it's piezoelectric. You know what piezoelectric is? You put a voltage on it and it moves. Or you move it and it creates a voltage. And he said, something's going on there. And then he traced that down. And then there's also a crystal radio, a diode. You put a piece of wire on, on a certain kind of metal or... Um, conducting semiconductors and it converts radio waves into audio waves and he was fascinated with this I don't know that much about Bardeen I wish I did um, but he figured it out and there's no question about that um, and Shockley meanwhile was gone he was out in Stanford and um, while he was in Stanford, Bardeen and his colleagues were inventing the first transistor, which then Shockley came back and he was really upset about it. He tried to take credit for it, but that was pretty hard to do at that point. So I'm not sure what I'm even talking about. But at eight years old, I was thinking about this and I was fascinated by it. And that's the way the human mind works. It just gets caught up in some crazy thing and it's designed. The human mind, of course, wasn't designed by a person. I don't want to get into the philosophy of how, where it came from, but <laughs> um, the human mind is very, very good at teasing things apart. And uh, that's, what make that's what makes the world go round. So your, grandma, your grandmother, Give you, you know, gave you this, this radio, mm -hmm. but you still needed to have the 
All he needed was a pair of wire cutters. Right, but something, something inside of your head told you, okay, I want to figure it out. Because I'm sure your, uh, your grandma and many other times probably have, you know, gave you similar thing, but you decided not to go further. I like, just, I forgot this until now, but she also had a television set. It was about this big. It was a small portable television set and it didn't work. And this was later. It was after that. It was a few years later. And I, by, I could tell you how I did it, but it's not that interesting. But I figured out what was wrong with it. And I fixed it. And I gave it back to her. And she was just like. <laughs> so it was a broken wire on the circuit board. Or, you know, I just, I traced it down. It was actually took me a long time to figure it out, but I was motivated. And so I figured it out and then I saw, oh, that's what the problem is. And so I fixed it and I presented the television set back to her at that point. She was just like, couldn't believe it. So there's a big reward there, right? That I'm sure gave, gave you like a, a positive like feedback loop in order right, for you to keep going. Hey, you know, I'm not very good in the English class and I can't spell very well, but I can do this kind of stuff. I still have, and now I understand my spelling problem because I, um, I, it's very easy to look a word up on your electronic dictionary on your computer. So when I write a, a message, and then I go and do the spell checking. I make sure that I know exactly why I didn't spell that word. So I know what my deficiency is. And um, it's very simple. I just, ah, is ah an E or an A or an I? So I, I get the vowels wrong. Or I leave the whole syllable out. But that's easy to figure out because you just sound it out. Dun, 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 dun. And he said, oh, I left out a syllable there. So I could put it back in, but I don't know what vowel goes with it. So about 50% of the time, I get the vowel wrong. But I look at it, I think, it's not right. And then <laughs> I try another vowel. No, that's not right. Try another vowel. Yeah, that works. But now you just hit the spell checker, and it tells you what it is. So. Yeah, and you know, I don't, I don't think it's necessarily your deficiency. I think it has to do more with the English language. Because every... Every like a um, like every. There's vowel. not a unique mapping with the vowels. So for right for there's twenty vowels. You may think there are fewer many fewer of them, but there's twenty vowels and twenty consonants, and you can calculate the entropy of them. So that's log base two of the number. So it's about four, four point one, four point two. So two to the Two to the fourth is 16, right? So two to the 4.3 is like 20, something like that. So it's about 20 vowels and 20 consonants. But the number of vowels in the English language is only like A-E-I-O-U, A-E-I-O-U. So five. So we're missing 15 of them. <laughs> so what they do is they just, they let A be several different letters and E be several different letters. And it's pretty stupid. Is the long vowels and the short vowels. Yeah. Yeah, I do remember when I was learning English. 
because sometimes you had words like apple, and then you but that word when you when you say a you say you don't say ah you say a, so it was really confused. So and then I, I was trying to figure well, it you out. You don't say apple exactly. You say you say apple. You don't say apple. Right. But those would all be perfectly valid ways of pronouncing it. So I was really like so I was really confused. Is there something wrong with me or what's going on here? Because I think I remember one time actually, I was like reading the stuff and I was I say I think I remember something saying something about like apple. People looked at me weird, like apple. You mean apple? Like oh wow. Well, you still make subtle mistakes. I can hear them. I'm sure all you the time. You probably don't even know it and. It's not a very good idea to go around correcting people, but you only have, how long have you known English? Four years? Five years, yes. Wow, you're amazing. I wouldn't worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> but the brain, so this is something that I learned from studying reading disabled kids, that you learn automatically, and my granddaughter is a good example of this, by two years old, she's fluent in talking. She has a huge vocabulary. Two years old, and what was that word that I told you? She says, it's goofy. She's walking around saying everything is goofy. She's two years old. So you learn to talk, and you hear, and you talk, and this all comes naturally. Reading is a completely different story. You do not learn how to read on your own. It's extremely rare for somebody to learn to read. You have to be taught to read. And if you don't have, we just submitted a paper on this and I hope it gets accepted, but these kids who can't learn to read, and it's like 20% of the population, young kids, you know, like eight years old, they can't learn how to read. And the teacher works with them and they can't learn how to read. The problem we showed and it's a fact that they don't know their consonants. So they can't identify the various consonants. Whereas normal reading kids are very good at it. They make very few errors. Now that's, they hear the sound and they, they know. I mean, I have a problem with the vowels. Lots of people do for the reasons that you just said. There's not a unique mapping. There's long and the shorts, but you got in, I'm getting into too much detail here. There's something called encoding and decoding. So you look at the letters and you have to say the sound. You hear the sound, you have to write the letters. This is a complicated mapping. It's incredible. And yet, a lot of people just pick it up. You show them, Johnny went up the hill. Jill and, you know, I mean, they just, <laughs> they figure this out. You know, what's going on up here is they're wired to allow it to be taught, but they don't learn it naturally. <clears throat> I, I, I met um, your granddaughter, Mina, the other day, and I, to say she's good is a massive understatement. So tell us more about what you did with her uh, specifically, and also what you learned about learning disabilities and the relationship with hearing. I mean, you want me to tell you my life story? <coughs> and, and yes, and please go. No, I mean, so Mina went to the doctor this morning or yesterday. I don't remember which. I think it was this morning. And Mina started talking. And the doctor was flabbergasted. 
And she told my daughter, she says, Mike, well, I wasn't there, so I don't want to, you know, but Elizabeth <laughs> said that the doctor was blown away by her speech, which is consistent with what you're saying. And we know it's true. So how did this happen? Well, so I'm very, very interested in speech perception. I spent a lot of my life studying it because I was working for the telephone company. I was working how the ear works and how the brain processes the signals coming from the cochlea, blah, blah, blah. And I want to find another nice problem to work on. Well, speech perception is probably a pretty good problem. So I studied that. And I, when I came to the University of Illinois, I, did a lot, I wrote a lot of papers on that with my students. So I appreciated the subtleties of this whole process. It's one of the most important things that the brain has to do is to decode sound. It's kind of an off, off topic. I think I mentioned this to you. If you had the choice of losing, or you don't have the choice, you're forced, you're going to, you have it, you know, they put you in a room, they say, we're going to either cut your eyes off or you're going to cut your ears out. What do you, which one do you want us, what do you want, do you want to keep? Everybody says my eyes. That's actually the wrong answer because when you hear, you also speak and it's a two-way channel, communication channel. You're speaking, you're hearing, you're speaking, you're hearing. It's a communication thing. But with your eyes, you can't speak with your eyes. You can read, you can input, goes up here, you can think about it, but sound doesn't come out of your ears because you see something. You know, sound doesn't, light doesn't come out of your eyes. Sound comes into your ears and sound comes out of your mouth. It's, from a human point of view, it's much more important to have the oral, aural, oral, aural system in operation. Where, I mean, nobody wants to lose their eyesight, but from a psychological point of view, Speech is more important. And so I was fascinated by this topic and really spent a lot of time studying it, figured out what is it about the speech sound that makes a ta different from a da? So I know the answer to that question because we did some experiments and figured it out. And my student worked on that, Pei Pong Lee, he's now at Apple. What's he doing there? I don't know. He can't tell me. <laughs> <laughs> Probably in Siri, maybe. <laughs> can't say. Don't know. Yeah. So anyway, that's kind of like a little piece of it. So Mina, when she was one year old, probably nine months old, I don't remember how old she was, but she was not much bigger than this. And I would, on purpose, I would move my lips like that. And, and I would go, ba, 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 ba. And pretty soon she was, she was doing it too. And we just kept working on it. The whole family was into this thing, trying to get her to talk. Boy, did she learn how to talk. <laughs> <laughs> and my, because of this reading problem about kids who can't learn how to read, I said, I want to make sure this kid knows all those sounds really, really well. And the first way you learn that is you speak them. You hear them and you speak them. You hear them and you speak them. And so I really worked on her. And so did my daughter and so did my wife. We all were working on her to do that. And it paid off. If you consider talking at the age of two paying off. 
<laughs> I mean, she can't shut up. <laughs> but she also knows, she doesn't, I, I believe she doesn't know the numbers, but she also knows the prime numbers. Uh, that's a, kind of a cute story. So when she first started the count, she got one, two, three. She was watching Sesame Street or, or one of those programs, and she got up to three. And when she got above three, then she just went on the primes. And I went, <laughs> what? She went one, three, five, seven, nine. No, nine's not prime. So 11. 11. She did that. <laughs> and then she's got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eleven. And now she's up in the 20s and she's doing 17, 19. I mean, it's consistent. I should have gotten this recorded. I can't believe it. That she intuitively, I'm. this may just be a bunch of hokey stuff. <laughs> I can't believe that it's true. But she, I've listened very, I understand the, the situation with the primes. The primes are the, are the basic number set. All other numbers are composed of primes. Like three is, three squared is nine. Nine squared, 81. Every single number has a unique representation in terms of primes. This has been understood way back from the beginning, you know, from the beginning of science. And the Greeks, they understood that. Something called Aristoteles sieve. You, how can you find the primes? This is a fun, it's actually interesting tell us, tell concept. Us. Tell how do you find the primes? Well, you write down all the numbers in a book. I have all. I just copied it from somebody else. You write down all the numbers from one to fifty. This is a starter. So one's not a prime. So you take that out. Two is a prime. So now you make all of the multiples of two. So two, four, eight. 16, 32, 60, cross them all off. Okay, now what's left? Well, there's three. So three is a prime. So you might make all the multiples of three. So you say three, six, three, three times three is nine, four times three is 12, and you cross all those off. Well, you can see this is gonna get rid of all the numbers pretty fast because most numbers are multiples of various primes or multiples of themselves. Like so the next one is four. Well, that's already been crossed off. Next one is five. Oh, that's a prime. Next one is six. Well, that's crossed off because it's two times three. Next one is seven. Ah, another prime. Now eight, that's two cubed. Nine is three squared. Ten, two times five. Eleven, ah, another prime. So there's one of the, there's a really magic discovery um, that between every prime and two times that prime, there's always another prime between them. Say it again? So, so pick a prime. I mean, 13. keep it. So what's twice that? 26. Yeah. There's guaranteed to be at least one prime between every nine and every prime and it's double. 17 is one. Yeah, so you, but I mean, if you get two, okay, two is a prime, two times double that, it's four. Well, three's in between it. Oh, very cool. And you can refine this instead of saying between every prime and 
So there's a little saying by Chubby Chef. Um, he's a mathematician, and he has a like a limerick about it, which is in my book. I don't remember it, but there's always a prime between a number and twice that number. And nobody knows why, but it's not very surprising if you think about it for a while. Who knows? Maybe you you oh, will I'm, find something. I'm not even thinking about it. Yeah. <laughs> but you, you do think about math problems. Yes, definitely. But back to Mina. Why in the world, when she doesn't know the next number, she goes to the next prime? I mean, this is just amazing. I really don't believe it, but that's what she does. And she started off down there in the low numbers. She couldn't figure out, she didn't remember four, so she jumped to five. And then she jumped to seven. But now she's, the numbers that she's missing, I think she was counting today, she would hit 13 and she skipped 14 and she went, skipped 15, 16, then she went to 18 or 17. She went to 17. She skipped a bunch of numbers. I can't believe it. And it turns out to be a prime number. <laughs> she always jumps to a prime number. Now, it's just not observant enough. Maybe it's not true, but I can't believe it. But I've observed it many times. A little, you know, beauty on, you know, perhaps a gift, a gift of a gift of life. Having a, your 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 granddaughter to teach you these yes, things. Definitely. You don't have to convince me of that. <laughs> you know, something that I find interesting, you know, going back to, to Bell Labs, you know, uh, like Richard Feynman always would say, if you don't work on important problems, it's unlikely you, you would do important work. Or Mr. Hamming, he would go around Hamming was at Bell Labs. Right, right, right. And 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 Hamming Feynman was not right, um, and, and you know, uh, Mr. Hamming would would go around on the, on the on the lunch tables, and he would go and he would ask people, "What's the like what like what are the important problems in your field, and why you're not working on them?" And he says, you know, he he has some stories about how he asked he he, he went to the chemistry table, and he asked he, a question. He'd and, sit at the chemistry table and he got kicked every out every day. <laughs> And then he sat at the physics table. So that's where he learned a lot from that. But something about Bell Labs that allow people like you to work on important problems. And perhaps that's not a behavior that is not rewarded in today's academia. I don't, I don't know. Well, what do you think? Well, I don't believe that. But it would be easy to make the case because most people don't work on hard problems. But I, that doesn't mean that it's not happening. I mean, what do we know about 300 years ago? Do you think there were more people working on difficult problems 300 years ago? I doubt it. I think there's more people working on difficult problems today. But there's so few and far between that you can't get good statistics on it. We just know about the famous people who did very, very good math, but we're ignoring all the people who didn't do anything but figure out where they're gonna get their lunch tomorrow. 
So I don't, I don't think there's any statistical evidence that that's true. Well, perhaps that was a framing issue. When I say important problems, I say important problems that... What is a, an important problem? You know, Feynman would say an important problem is something that you can contribute to or that, that you can, like, push the, the ball forward. <clears throat> That's almost not a definition. Important problem. Is it an important problem to pick lint off your socks, which I was doing a second ago? No. Is it an important problem to figure out how to remove salt from ocean water? Probably. Is it an important problem to go to the moon? I don't know. Maybe it's a terrible idea <laughs> because you can't get back. I don't know. I mean, what's an important problem? It's, it's a very ethereal question. I mean, what is an important problem? Well, I'm working on an important problem that I discovered not too long ago. How do you find the roots of a polynomial? Well, Newton solved that problem. And it's really interesting, his solution. But if you look in Wikipedia, it's called Newton's method. If you look on Wikipedia, or you look in the textbooks, or you look anywhere, they tell you, well, Newton's method is a pretty cool method, and some of the time it works, but it doesn't always work. I believe it always works when you apply it properly. And I got, I'm not gonna talk about that part. I got in a fight with somebody who was a, it was, when I say a fight, we weren't hitting each other, but there was disagreement and emotional disagreement. Well, when you get emotional disagreement about an intellectual problem, you've got an interesting problem. There's the definition of an interesting problem. Two people who are of normal intelligence or higher can't agree on the solution. And they're willing to yell at each other about it. That's an important problem. That's a problem that's worth solving. There's an expression at Bell Labs, don't solve problems that aren't worth solving. That probably gets as close to it as, as any. But you still pursue. So deciding on, on what problems to work on, it takes a lot of effort and commitment. And, and it's, that. there are no rules. I mean, we were talking yesterday, I think it was about Feynman. And I was telling you about something I read about him, that he saw somebody throwing a Frisbee and the Frisbee didn't just go smoothly through the air. It wobbled like this. And he thought, you know, that's weird that that's doing that like that. So it's something about angular momentum or something like that. And he said, it's probably in that book, The Pleasure of Doing, of Learning, something like that. And I'm not sure if that's, but I saw that book on a table um, in my house. I didn't put it there. So I probably must have picked it up and read this. out of. I don't know where I, where I got it, but <clears throat> he then said that, <clears throat> he studied that problem just because he found it interesting. He had an intuition that it was interesting. It was a hard problem to solve. 
couple of years later, he got the Nobel Prize because he applied that solution to electrons and figured out about the spin. And the spin of the electron is a wobble just like that, that Frisbee going through the air. And he got the Nobel Prize for it. <laughs> and there were some Hans Bethe, famous physicist, was, was, they, were, they were all at, at um, Cornell. And Beta, who far, far more famous than Feynman, Feynman was a student. Beta kept saying, why are you interested in that stupid problem about the Frisbee? And Feynman says, I don't know, but I am. And then he reflected on that and said, you know, the really cool thing was I was interested in it. I had no reason to be interested in it. It just was a really interesting problem. It's a math problem, if you want to look at it that way. And so he said, you know, I got to figure that out. And so he did. And then you could say it's by chance, but it's not. You could say it's by chance, but that's why he applied that solution to the hydrogen atom and the electrons, whatever he did. I don't know the details, but he ended up getting the Nobel Prize for it. And he's proud of that. That's why it happened. Being able to follow your curiosity with just that purpose, which relates to the idea that you explained to me the other day about scientific biological reductionism. Right. That's basically how it works is that you open a box and then when you open it, there's another one. And then when you open that one, there's another one. We got to figure out how to open each one. Each one is a Chinese box, okay? Think of it that way. You open the first, you know, I spent a long time trying to figure out how to open it up. You open it up. Oh, no. There's another one inside. <laughs> now I got to spend another week figuring out how to open and take that one apart. So think of it as nested Chinese boxes. Each one is a challenge. Some people like working on puzzles, right? Sudoku, what's it called? I don't do it but these word games they just are fascinated by it they're proud they're they're good at it that doesn't that doesn't uh, excite me I wouldn't you would never catch me trying one of those puzzles because you can solve it and that shows that you're you've got a good brain for doing that kind of thing but it doesn't go anywhere there's no second box inside with reductionism, science is built on trying to understand how a neuron works. And then once you figured that out, then you say, well, all those neurons are connected to 10 to the 11th other neurons, and they all interact with each other. So what's that problem? How am I going to solve that one? And it's just a tediously slow process. I don't know if you're aware, but there, it's like there's actually a, a huge thing going on right now. There's a game uh, called Wordle. Have you heard of it? Wordle? Wordle. I think, I think it's called. I've heard of Prickleball. <laughs> Pickleball. Yeah, but basically this, this game is like a word game. I don't really know how it works because I've never played it because it's the same thing. You solve it? And, okay, great. You solve it and, and there's nothing about it. But millions of people around the world are playing this game. On the computer? Uh, it's on the browser, the phone, anywhere. So 
it's basically about putting words together and like doing stuff like that. And actually, the New York Times just bought it for. Uh, they didn't say how much, but I think. What's it called again? Wordle. Uh, it's got word in there. Wordle and then L E. I think that's what it's called. I have. Oh, you, you've heard of it? Uh, yeah, it, I saw it, but my eyes skipped over it and went to something else. But yeah, I remember now. And in even the the New York Times just just bought it for a couple hundred million dollars or something something like that. But it talks about the idea of like how people like solving these puzzles, but you solve it. That, that's it. I've never played it. I don't want to play it. But uh, you sort of just think that you solve it, and then so that doesn't motivate me even even by the smallest amount. I'm completely uninterested <laughs> in it. But there was another puzzle. It was a puzzle that I put it in my book, and I had a student, a young woman, and I showed her this puzzle, and she just went nuts trying to figure it out. And when she did figure it out, which she did, then it wasn't interesting anymore, and she, that was, she's gone. Okay, so the problem is, it's a Chinese puzzle. You have stones, and you want to weigh things on a scale from one, no pounds, they put no stones. One pound, you have a one pound stone. If you want to weigh two pounds, you have to have a three pound stone. You put a three pound stone on there, you have two one pound stones, and you take your one pound stone and you put it on there with the two pounds, and now you get a balance. So you didn't need another stone for three. You got it? So four, so now you got a three and a one, so you can make a combination of that. So again, you didn't need another one. So how do you how do you solve this problem? Well, you write down a matrix, and on over here you, you have these matrix, and you, you want to put plus, minus, and zero in the rows, and you want the weights of the stones over here. So one, three, whatever they are. And then you multiply it out, and that has to come out to one. And then you take the next row, you multiply that out, they're called a dot product. So this is the stones. And you don't know what the stones are down there, but you've got to generate all the numbers from 1 to 40. So once you see that you can do this construction this way, it's a trivial problem. And it's fun because it's, I think it was, I enjoyed, enjoyed it and I liked it because it was a math problem. And I had to formulate the math problem and say, Hmm, this is like a linear, it's a matrix multiplication problem, and the elements in the matrix are either plus one, minus one, or zero. Can that work? And I'm going to figure out what the numbers are in this column, and I'm going to take these inner products, and am I able to, I knew there was an answer because they, formed, they said, find out what the, the minimum number of stones that you have. So I knew the answer had to be true, but how do you, how do you figure it out? When I saw this doing these dot products, the elements are either minus one, plus one, or zero. So zero means that that stone doesn't get involved in, in that integer. And plus one means you gotta have a stone that's one more. And minus one means you gotta take one of your earlier stones and put it over there with the thing you're trying to weigh. And then you said, hmm, that's not too bad. And it's, you only need I don't remember. I think you only need four stones, five stones, something like that. It's a very small number. Of course, it's got to weigh up to add up to forty. Anyway, it's a it's a problem that I did like 
but I've never looked at this wordy thing, but I doubt that I'm going to like it because it doesn't have a math solution. Right? I don't know. Maybe. I, I Word know. problems have huge numbers. Of, the probability just goes off the charts because you take a three-letter word and there's 26 letters for the first letter, 26 for the second, 26 for the third, so it's 26 cubed. But it's not because the, you have to do consonant, vowel, consonant, vowel. So it's much more complicated. And not all words are words. So it's a, it's a very much harder problem. And I don't know how to attack it. If I did, I'd probably be in a different business. <laughs> You've said many times that in your book you say that you've in your in your career as engineer, perhaps you know, physicist and a little bit of mathematician, you said that you love that you love making mistakes. What's been your favorite mistake? Well, first, in the introduction of my book, I said I love making mistakes because I learn so much from them. Okay, I mean, if anybody tells you that they never make a mistake, they're lying to you. The way you learn is you make a mistake and then you figure out you did it wrong and then you learn. That's the process. So you've always, you've probably heard, don't be negative, always be positive. That's your philosophy, right? You have kind of, kind of, kind of. openly <laughs> stated that you're a person who... So there's a lot of ways of doing something wrong, but there's most of the time only one way to do it right. So if you can walk through life figuring out the right ways, every time you walk up to the door, you see two doors and you open up the door and there you walk into the hall and there's two more doors. You open up the door, you walk in. Now, if you, if you open the wrong door, there's a lion there that eats you. So if you could figure out by chance, you can't. I mean, if there's 10 doors, that's a thousand possibilities. Two to the 10th is 1024. So chances of you opening 10 doors in a row and getting every one of them right is one in a thousand. You're not gonna do it. So that's life. You go and you try something and it didn't work. So you learned, you start learning the day you're born. And anybody who's not inquisitive won't learn and they'll be miserable. <laughs> that's my that's my interpretation of what'll happen. Everybody learns. Or else they die. I remember I I quote I, I always think about is a you know, I think it goes a fool never learns from his mistakes. A smart person learns from their mistakes. And a wise person learns from other people's mistakes. That's good. It's an interesting quote. So you read books to learn about other people's mistakes probably, right? That's a good, that's a safe way to make mistakes. What's been one book that you've gifted the most? I can't answer that question. 
because there isn't one book. I, I can't even... Briawan's book on periodic structures. Okay, there's an answer. Briawan is a famous physicist. He died probably in the 50s, and he's responsible for something called Briawan zones. Leon Briawan, I think that's how you pronounce his name. Leon Briawan, it's French, <laughs> but he was an American. I don't know if he was born in France, but anyway. And he, if you study quantum mechanics or semiconductor theory or whatever, you have crystals like silicon or germanium or whatever, and electrons go in there and they float around. And those are called semiconductors because sometimes the electrons freely move and sometimes they're blocked and they can't move. <clears throat> That's what, um, that, that was the secret to understanding semiconductors, is understanding that. Now, whether a wave can move, whether an electron can move freely or it gets blocked, there's rules about that, and those rules are called Briouan zones. They're named after Leon Briouan. He figured it out and documented it and quantified it, and he wrote this book on periodic structures, waves. He's talking about electron waves in periodic structures. And that book is just simply amazing because it's got, I mean, but to answer the question again, when I was inducted into the professor army, I was made a professor in the library said, we would like you to pick a book that is your favorite book. And then we'll buy a copy of it. And all, every professor has a book in the library that they picked. Really? Yeah. And I don't remember what book I picked. <laughs> but it could have been Briolan's book. But I don't think it was. Can you go in and ask what's Dr. Allen's book? Or? Oh, yeah. They're in a special place in the library somewhere. There's probably a list. Some people picked some kind of silly books, you know, like, you know, Jane and Alice. I mean, some, I, <laughs> um, I was kind of shocked by some of the books that people picked, you know, something that was important to them in their childhood. It was important to them or they wouldn't have put it there, right? Right. I'm not criticizing them. I'm just surprised. The book that they picked was not intellectually challenging. Except when you're three years old, I guess. I don't know. I can't can't remember the details, probably on purpose, okay? Okay, fair enough. <laughs> the I do want to ask you about and know more about your class that the the, the class we're teaching, neuroscience for engineers, which is as you described it to me, talking about the science behind machine learning. So tell us more about how you find how, like the, the story of how 
of where you get that the that from, and also why the current machine learning class are probably not the best way to understand and make progress in, in, in this field of machine learning. I have a feeling you're quoting me, and if I said that, I'm probably in trouble. But My words, my words. Yeah, right? no, but you got the sense of it that everybody's hot, hot, hot on machine learning, and I don't blame them. I mean, it's very successful. It's going a long way. It's doing good things. But what they teach you, my understanding of it is what they teach you in these classes is how to run the computer programs. And they have to train these computer programs to learn how to recognize things with, you know, billions of examples. And they have a switching network. I call it a, a Boolean Hilbert space, which means that it's a high dimensional space Everything is a logical input and a logical output. It's these ones and zeros. You put in billions of ones and zeros and you get out. That is a picture of your grandmother. Show them a picture and they say, that's my grandmother when she was 12. You go, oh, how'd you figure that out? Well, because I, I saw a picture before. And so some people, smart people, who some of them were at Bell Labs, some of them whom I knew, still do. They figured out how to do this. And why were they inspired to do that? Because they learned about how the brain worked just enough. So there's a thing called the perceptron, which is a concept. McCulloch and Pitts came up with the idea, I think it's them, of the perceptron. The perceptron is a learning circuit, sort of. And it's based on neurons. The concept is based on neurons. You have a sum of millions of neurons all connected out there like this, fingers. They come in and they have synapses where they're joined together. And the synapses is like that problem I was telling you about the weights. You got to switch all of the weights just right. And if you get them right, bang, you can make a weight that's 17 pounds or 18 or 19 or 20, up to 40. And there's only one way to solve that problem. Well, how do you learn that automatically? Well, they figured out that this machine, it's a whole science behind it. There's books. And the book that I, so what happened? We got to cut this off because, you know, it's getting late. But um, I, you, you can't be unaware. I hate double negatives. So I was very, I and everybody else was very aware of how much progress was being made in machine learning. But the problem from my point of view was there was, all of these people just trying things randomly, which is the best way to do it when you don't know anything. But there was no science behind it. Yet I knew there was a science behind it because I had been working in the brain of the cat and I'd been working in the auditory system and I knew just enough to be dangerous. So I said, you know, there's a science behind this and you guys aren't paying any attention to it. How are you going to figure this out if you don't have some science behind it? So I said, what we need is a course that teaches this. Now, I'm not going to have 200 students like the machine learning class, 
But if I have 10 or 20 students in the class and they really understand the principles, they're going to be the superstars in the future. And it's true. I put out a proposal to the curriculum committee, ECE. I said, let's have, I would like to teach this course. I said, what are your qualifications? I don't have any. <laughs> don't look at me. And here's the book I'd like to teach from. And I said, I got a lot of pushback on that. I said, that book was written 20 years ago. Why would you want to use that book? There's much more recent, more recent books. There's a lot of progress being made in, in, in this field. And you're not picking the book. You're picking some old book that's 20 years old. I said, well, are you telling the guy who's going to teach the course what book they should use? Well, they had to shrink back on that one. <laughs> I said, well, the reason I'm picking that book is because it really covers the history. It explains that these people who propose the idea that there's feedback in the brain, they all got rejected. They had terrible things happen to them. You know, they were made fun of. But it turns out there's feedback in the brain. And Scott, in the book, he, he questions, why did this happen? He said, well, they didn't want to put feedback in the brain because it's too hard to solve. Well, that's not much of a reason, is it? <laughs> <laughs> so, did I say enough on that topic for now? Or do you have another question? And what's the name of the book for so, so for people can know? It's called Neuros an Introduction to Neuroscience, um, a Mathematical Primer or Primer by Alwyn Scott. And you can get the PDF off my website and it's readable by anybody. There's another book. It's much more detailed. What's the guy's name? So, um, anyway, I looked at the two books and I said, this book's too hard. We want something that's simple. It gives all the history behind it. Talks about the basic papers, what's going on 100 years ago, what's going on 50 years ago, what's going on 20 years ago. That's good enough. This is the book I want. And I haven't looked back. I picked the right one. The uh, only time will tell when these people who are taking your class will be making the, the next discoveries. No, I just gave the first exam and on Monday. And on Wednesday, we reviewed the exam. And much to my relief, everybody looked pretty happy. <laughs> which I was glad. I didn't want them to fail. And I there were some hard problems in there that they didn't get. But when they <laughs> did, they were happy. Okay. Yeah, I, I did look at the, the test, and how I found it interesting is that you, you asked a lot of like conceptual questions about, you know, tell me how this relates to, to this, or like tell me about who this was, or like, that really like it, it blends a little bit of the history of how of how things came to be, but also a lot of practical questions. So you, you had a you have some circus and you need to you you, you ask people like write like write this equation this way and stuff like that, which is which I've so far taking a lot of math and engineering classes, never seen that thing. And I do I do have an intuition that perhaps learning a little bit of the history may give a deeper... What you're talking about is Hodgkin and Huxley in the 1950s figured out 
how spikes propagate along nerve fibers. And they used a lot of electronics and a lot of stuff to do it. And it was, they came up with a set of equations which don't make a particle of sense, but they do describe the phenomenon. And when I was teaching this, this is the third time I taught it, when I first taught it, I said, that looks like an electrical circuit to me. And they knew it was an electrical circuit. They said there's potassium and sodium going across a barrier and all this stuff. And I said, I'm going to see if I can make a diode circuit. I mean, I, ended, I thought I could do it with two diodes and two batteries, but it turned out I needed three diodes and two batteries. And it worked. And on Wednesday, that was yesterday, right? On Wednesday, I got up. I didn't get up, I was up. And I said, here's how this circuit works. And this was a question on the exam. So you first you turn the pulse going in, and this diode turns on, that diode turns off, and so it charges this capacitor, which is the myelin capacitor. And then the voltage goes off, and then that switch goes on, and this switch goes off, and so now it discharges through this, that discharges that capacitor through a different resistor. So you bought a bunch of switches, and they go on depending on how the voltage is that's coming in. And this very, very simple circuit explains Hodgkin and Huxley's model. They have these horrible equations, three diffusion equations that are nonlinear. They don't make any sense at all. There's no physics in them at all. And here is a circuit diagram. It's really simple. It's just a bunch of relays. The diode is a relay. And one guy said, you know, I didn't understand it until now. Now I understand it. I said, the reason for that is that I didn't understand it either. I was forced into figuring it. I knew it worked because we had a working circuit, which was a slow process to get it to work. And at one time, I probably understood why this worked, but I didn't have it really down. And I, I have to teach this. It's on the exam. I really have to explain it. So I sat there and nailed it. And I got up, showed it. And the guy says, now I understand it. I said, good. So do I. <laughs> okay. And then before I ask you the the last couple of questions, uh, was there any of, of, of other ideas that you wanted to talk about or, or bring up? There's too many. I'll talk about one. Perfect. Maybe the, the CO2 one, perhaps? Or No, that's too complicated. You, you choose. There's something called Bernoulli trials. That's a mathematical concept, but it's actually pretty simple. Although, the way people treat it. Okay, look, <laughs> Bernoulli trials. You have a coin, you flip it. It either comes up heads or tails. If you flip it a thousand times, it's a fair coin. What's the average of the number of heads and the number of tails? They're equal, right? Yeah. So the odds ratio is how many heads do you get divided by how many tails? And that should be one half for a fair coin. And that's, so you're flipping the coins and you say, how many times do I have to flip it to know that it's a fair coin? Well, there isn't any answer to that question because it depends how close. If you flip it 10 times, there's a very high probability you'll get 10 heads in a row. And you'll think it's an unfair coin, but you're completely wrong. You have to flip it a thousand times and then you'll know that it's a fair coin. <clears throat> so there's a very, very important question. <clears throat> <clears throat> goes back to Daniel Bernoulli. <clears throat> How many times do you have to flip it 
so that you can estimate the odds ratio, which is the probability of heads to tails, the number of heads to the number of tails. Well, if I told you one time, you'd tell me I was crazy. But I'm going to tell you a problem where one time is the answer. Let's say you want to know if you have COVID. You go get tested. So no, zero. Get tested again, zero. Get tested again, zero. Get tested again, zero. You get 100 tests and you're zero. One day you go in there and you get tested and you're positive. Are you positive or not? You are positive. And it depends on the false, false positive rate. Now you get tested 100 times and it never came up positive one time. 100 times in a row, it's negative. And then one day you get a positive. You know you're positive. And all you have to do is get, get tested again two times in a row and you are positive. Now, if you told somebody that with Bernoulli trials, you only need to get one head to know that it's a it's not a fair coin or, you know, there's a question you have to ask carefully. So nobody would say one time except somebody who really understands the problem and you ask them that question and they say, one time, but the, per, the number of people that'll say that are rare. So this, this is a nice little story. I'm gonna stop on this one, okay? There's a guy by the name of Laplace, famous mathematician. And somebody asked him, what's the probability that tomorrow the sun won't rise? <laughs> and he came up with the right answer. He said, let's assume <clears throat> that the sun has rised risen 5,000 times. So the probability that it won't rise tomorrow is one over 5,001. If it, this is the same problem as the COVID test, right? Exactly. If you've had a lot of observations and every single time it happened, the best answer is that it, that it won't happen is you add one, you divide the number of times you've seen it plus one, that is the odds. And that's the best you can do. Now, he doesn't know about nuclear fission, that the sun is made of hydrogen and the hydrogen is burning up and E equals MC squared. He doesn't know any of that. But he's a good mathematician, so he gives you the right answer. And what people, the mistake people make when they think about Bernoulli trials is they think this coin has a bias. And I want to find it. Well, that's the wrong question. It's, a, it's not a stationary coin. It was a one-headed coin until one day it became a one-tailed coin. So it's a non-homogeneous process. That's the real problem. And as far as I know, that's not the problem they talk about. They talk about, you flip the coin, how many times does it take? What's the probability? What are the odds? Bernoulli polynomials, all sorts of gobbledygook. <coughs> Very interesting. <coughs> Mathematics, but completely irrelevant. <coughs> so it's a fun problem. It's extremely important. And yeah, I'm, I'm currently taking a, a statistics and probability class. And if you, you know, if it wasn't because of you, I probably would have never heard of the Bernoulli trials and also the 
Laplace, um, Sunrise problem, I think, I believe it's called. Sunrise hypothesis. Sunrise hypothesis, there you go. So is your class talked about Bernoulli yet? I don't think so. I mean, they don't necessarily say like Bernoulli per se, but they, they mostly talked about some of the theorems that he, he sort of developed. And choose K. But, you know, they never mentioned you know, who Bernoulli was or how he did it. Well, there's a lot of math associated yeah. with it, but none of the math talks about non-homogeneous processes. It just assumes that the odd ratio is a fixed number and you're going to compute everything and <clears throat> give you a lot of homework problems on it. <clears throat> and you end up scratching your head. You have, well, what is the point of all of this? Well, the point is, one trial, and you know you're positive. Why should one? Why should one learn statistics or probability? Hmm? Like why should why should one learn statistics or probability? Oh, I think it's extremely important, but the way it's taught is so obscure that it. I mean, I I remember I I want to stop this conversation, but it does not happening. I was taking the course in random processes at the University of Pennsylvania, and the teacher was very, very good. And one day I went to class, and I wasn't following very well what was going on. And then he said, right out of his mouth, he says, since one plus one is equal to one. And I said, oh my God, I'm in big trouble. <laughs> <laughs> It's basically, if you have two truths, then it's true. You have true plus false, you don't know. If it's two false, then the output is false. So he was just talking logic, how you know, Boolean logic. And he did it on purpose. And I got it. Then I knew I was in deep, deep trouble because we were halfway through the course. Anyway, let's end on that. <laughs> Last question. <clears throat> From everything you've learned in your 78 years of life, what advice would you give a driven and ambitious college student as they take on their life? Okay, number one, try to figure out what you like and don't ignore it. But if you find something out that you like more than that, go for it. Don't get stuck in a hole because when you were six year old, you liked something. So I knew I was good at a certain kind of thing and it was so easy for me that I said, I don't want to do that because it's too easy. So I didn't, I avoided it. And then I failed a whole bunch. And then one day I said, you know, th what I am good at is actually quite useful. So just get off the, your horse and, and start working on the things you're good at. <clears throat> when I made that decision, <clears throat> I'm losing my voice. <clears throat> when I made that decision, it was like, a 90 degree turn, turn and 180 degrees and I started going the other direction and I started becoming successful. 
because I identified something that I was good at. And I was good at it. And you're talking about circuits? Well, or? I don't want to try to define too carefully what it was I was good at okay. because I'm not sure I can even remember. But I, I knew there were certain things that I could do very easily. They probably did not include language because I couldn't spell. <clears throat> I think Einstein was dyslectic, right? Something like that. Yeah. So I think I don't want to get into this. I think I could explain what's going on in the brain at this point. I've read enough neuroscience and you have visual memory, right? You have auditory memory, which is bigger. Well, there's a million nerves in each eye and there's 50,000 or 30,000 in each ear. So there's a lot more neurons coming out of the eyes than there are coming out of the ears. A lot of the process is happening right there in the eye. That's why Jerry Letman got in trouble and he lost his funding because he said the processing is going on in the retina. They said, you are no longer going to be funded. That's the craziest thing we've ever heard. Of course, he was right. Okay, no more questions. Perfect. Uh, all right. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Allen. I think talking to you has really inspired me to you know to, to seek out and and really find the things I like and and really learn what it's like to open a box and open the other one and open a box and open I'm the other one. I'm not in the slightest bit worried about you. You're highly motivated. You're trying to figure things out and you are going to figure them out. At least I'll try. I can be, maybe I can accelerate the process a little bit by showing you how to do it. But you read that read that paper that I gave you about Hammy. That's a pretty amazing document. Almost done. He's so critical of everybody, but there's a message in every every criticism. He went so far as to say somebody was stupid. <laughs> which is not a very nice thing to say. <laughs> and it probably wasn't true. It just wasn't. Okay, stop. All right. Thank you very much.